0: visit the all-in-gospel.com website. Record. So we're gonna pick up tonight. I'm actually gonna pick up at the end of Genesis 22 because when we got done last time, Katie said, dad, you forgot an entire paragraph here at the end. And then I kind of gave an off the cuff answer But like a good researcher, I wanted to go back because I was like, why is that sitting there? And it doesn't make sense. So I started to do some digging and I kind of want to get back into that because I feel like it makes a lot more sense to me now than before. So um, to remind you, if we go back to 22, Abe just got done getting a test from God and he was supposed to give up his only son, Isaac. So he goes out, he travels out to this hill it takes three days. On the third day, he goes up the hill. Isaac carries the wood. He lays himself down on an altar. And at the very last moment, of course, God says, you don't have to do it. And Abe's like, phew, thanks. And then Isaac went with his father in obedience to him. He laid on the altar and he was ready to make meet his maker. And it, one thought about that, and I, again, I know I'm going backwards a little bit, but I thought one way to tell that story is the way we did it last week, where you look at Abraham's faith. And the amount of faith he had and the broken heart he would have had. But that's me as a dad relating to Abraham. And then I thought, I don't know if that relates as well to people that don't have kids. Because the other hero in the story is Isaac. Here's a guy who had so much regard and respect for his dad's relationship with God that he lays down on an altar. So there's a point where not only Abraham's ready to do the thing, Isaac's ready to take it and just say, okay, this is the end of my days, I guess then. And I think that's really kind of amazing. And we're going to see a lot of faith out of Isaac and then Jacob after that in different kinds of ways. But you think this is kind of an interesting, God had to be working on Isaac's heart too, because it's like they're playing out a play. Um, and they're doing this before a lot of other things. So there hasn't been a Red Sea. There's been no plagues on Egypt yet. There haven't been mighty conquests and walls tumbling down because you blow some trumpets. Uh, there's no stunning like pieces of writing that are out there. There's, there's nothing but faith that Isaac's dad is talking to God. And I thought, what would that look like if I went to Grant and said, you know, Grant, I've heard from God and I want you to lay down on that altar and then I pull a knife out of my pocket any rational person is saying, you're nuts. Like, dad, no, I'm not laying down on that altar so you can kill me. You're bipolar. Something's wrong with you. And you need medication and whatnot. And that's not the narrative we get here, which I think all by itself is kind of a miracle. Like God's working on these two guys' hearts because it's like they're the little sheep from the early childhood center getting up on a stage and they're playing out a drama. Um Then you gotta be able to unpack that drama. So if you look at, if we start tonight in 1 Corinthians 10, um, Paul is giving examples of things that are typos, and that's not when you make a mistake when you're writing. A typo is like a typograph or a type of character or a type that you see in the Old Testament. And he writes out and he you know points out that there are symbols or in the Greek, there's these types. That you see in the Bible that are telling the story of Jesus, and they're part of how Paul gives evidence to Jesus when he argues to people. So I'm going to pick up in First Corinthians chapter ten, verse eleven. Now all of these things happened unto them for in samples or typos, and they're written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are to come. In other words, we're supposed to look at the Old Testament and see examples for ourselves or Um, end samples, samplings of what we should be and what we should look like. And we're supposed to be there. However, then you start looking at other things like Deuteronomy 30. You want to flip there quick. Um, Deuteronomy 30 has this idea that there aren't secret codes in the Bible. So if Paul's saying there's like secret symbols that we're supposed to be seeing, but then in other parts of the Bible, I see Deuteronomy 30. uh, I'll start in verse 11. For this commandment which I commanded thee to this day, it's not hidden from thee, neither is it far off. It's not in heaven that thou should say, who shall go up for us to heaven and bring it to us that we might hear it and do it. And it's not beyond the sea that thou should say, who should go over to the sea for us and bring it to us that we might hear it and do it. But the word is very nigh unto thee. It's in thy mouth, in thy heart, and in, that thou mayst do it. See, I've set before thee this day life and good and death and evil. Second Peter 1 says, for we have not followed cunningly devised fables, when we made known to you the power of the Lord God. There is, there are no secret codes in the Bible, but there are symbols that should be really easy to see. And Paul uses these symbols to say that the story of Isaac and Abraham has to do with Jesus. This is going to help me get to the genealogy of Rebecca, because it starts to make sense all of a sudden when you look at this. Um, I'm going to go back through... So I did comment on a couple things, but I'm going to go back through the biblical typology of Isaac compared to Jesus on um, tons of different points. So number one, God promised it's ahead of time. There's a 25 gap with Isaac. There's about a thousand-year gap between prophecy and birth with Jesus. Two, Isaac and Jesus are both named before their birth, Luke 1, and Genesis seventeen nineteen. They both occurred at a set time or an ordained time. Um, which means God's been planning this for a while, Genesis 17, 21, and Galatians 4, 4. It's impossible to the moms that hear the news. This is totally an impossible thing. So God talks directly to the moms and settles their, eases their, their minds a little bit. Both Mary and Sarah questioned the birth of a child for various reasons. Mary, because she hadn't had, she wasn't married and she was still a virgin, And Sarah because she was quite old and knew that her time had passed for that. Genesis 18.10 and then Luke 1.34. Number five, both of them have servants or angels that come and announce that the birth is coming. Luke 1.28. Both were a joy to their dad. Abraham calls his son laughter. God says of of Jesus at the baptism, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. So both sons are pleasing to their dad. John 3.16. They're both the only sons of their people, even though they're not the only sons. God had other sons that he had made, Allah, Adam, right? And he had a daughter, Eve. Um, so Jesus wasn't God's only son technically, but there's the spiritual sense that's the only son. And the same with Abraham. Isaac wasn't the only son. Ishmael had already been born, but God kept referring to him as the only son. Is this bringing back last week? I'm going fast because it's review. Number seven, they're both obedient unto death, which is why I started out with this idea that Isaac laid down on an altar and his dad, his dad had a knife in his hand. But they're both obedient, willing to die. Genesis 22. Oddly enough, it is likely that they're both 33 years old when they do this. So they're even the same age when it happens. or very close to it. Number eight, they both carry their own wood up the hill. And there's strong evidence that it could very well possibly be the exact same hill that they walked up. And I think that's the coolest thing in the world. Um, And even if it's not, my faith isn't broken over that. But I just like to think that's pretty amazing. Number nine, both of them are barely mentioned prior to this act of laying down their life. So Jesus's real impact was written about, talked about, and spread all over the planet after his resurrection. And Isaac's story, really, it's told he was born, but his story really starts after his resurrection. He's been around for 33 years. He's not even part of the narrative. So if Isaac matches Jesus as a typology or a symbol, and Abe matches the father then you start to look at some other elements. So then you get this little narrative of Rebecca. And as soon as Isaac is raised from the dead, so to speak, and he doesn't have to he he comes out of that situation alive. Notice that Isaac disappears from the narrative. So he went up the hill with Dad, but he never comes down the hill. He just disappears from the narrative. And the next story that gets told at the very end of the chapter, immediately following that story, we find out that there's been a bride that's been born, but she's in a far off land. So typography, you don't have to stretch too far, that Rebecca represents the bride of Jesus or the church and that she's in a Gentile land. She's far away. The, she has to be sought and found. And there's going to be this period of time where her and Isaac are not together. And it's while Isaac goes away from the narrative. Eliezer then is the one that goes out and starts seeking out this bride and bringing her back home. And so Eliezer, which uh, literally translated is what? God is my helper. Oh, it's on the next page. So God is my helper goes and finds the bride. And then of course, Sarah um, represents the law and the promise, which is going to help us with the chapter we have tonight. So sequence of events, big picture. These three chapters weren't supposed to be split into three. They're one story, if you look at it as a typography. They're not randomly connected scroll types. So Isaac is three, after three days, he rises alive from after giving up his life willingly. Um, He disappears from the story. So he, he is gone for a while with the father. And Eleazar, the Holy Spirit has to go find the bride. He brings the bride back, which is where we're going to go next week with things. And between the time when the bride appears and the bride gets brought together with the son, there's this period where Sarah dies, Abraham mourns, and he has to interact with the world. And the world has righteous people in it. And there has to be this interaction between the world or the the ungodly people and the godly people. And a, and there's like this roadmap for how to interact with people, which is kind of our chapter tonight. But I'll keep going. Number 10 uh, was the Isaac doesn't get mentioned. Isaac's there in spirit, but he's not actually there in the narrative. Um, 12 was that, you see, I went way ahead. I had all this in my head. So number 12 is that Abe, the father is going to, or the wife of the father is going to die immediately after the resurrection of the son. And the law of the Jews is broken immediately after the death and resurrection of Jesus in chapter 23. Eliezer was number 13. Um, And the comparison to that is Jesus actually says and uses this interesting language when he does it, um, that the Holy Spirit would be with us and guide us to him while he's away. John 16, 17. A little while and ye shall not see me. And again, a little while and ye shall see me and because i go to the father it's an odd sentence construction but as a typology it actually really fits this story almost perfectly verse and then number 14 the bride is found living righteously in a world away from the promised land and then she gets grafted into abraham's family through marriage in the same way that jesus says that christians will be grafted onto the branch um and that there'll be a marriage there. So essentially, the Gentile church gets grafted into Israel. Eleazar, number 15, doesn't speak on his own authority. And he says multiple times that he represents the Father, which is kind of cool. And you'll see that when we get to it tonight. Howbeit, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you in all truth, for he shall not speak for himself. This is Jesus talking about the Holy Spirit. But whatever he shall hear, that he shall speak, and he will show you the things to come. Rebecca never sees her groom until the day she marries him. Which is kind of cool in that sense too, because it's another perfect fit. That was sixteen. Seventeen, the bride comes back to Isaac. He takes her into his home and he loves her just as Christ promises to love the church. So the son lays down his life, and immediately the bride is out there, Genesis twenty two twenty, and Genesis twenty two twenty four. But the groom's away preparing a place So the symbol looks like that we thought was an oops is actually, I think, and thanks for bringing this up, Katie, the bride is out there, and that's what that narrative right at the end of that last chapter is trying to say is now there's a bride and that's part of the narrative now, and it gets introduced exactly where it should be introduced, and if Moses is compiling Genesis, he wouldn't have known to put it would have just been an extra piece of scroll that he slapped in there like I said last week. But when you look at how the Holy Spirit kind of guided his hand in doing this, it's actually in the perfect place to make that entire metaphor that took me so long to go through again. It makes it all work perfectly because it's all at the right spot. And that's the sort of thing that I find miraculous about the Bible. That it just, though put together by human hands, is put together in such a way that it tells a 2,000 year story perfectly. And I think that's pretty nifty. Anyways we'll start with verse one. I know it took me a long time to get there. Verse one, Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. So Sarah's the only woman in the Bible that we get to find out how old she was when she died. My thought is she just didn't have a problem with people knowing her age. Uh, we look to her in Isaiah 51. It says, and I'm kind of honoring Sarah a little bit tonight and how important she is. Isaiah 51 uh, verse one says, hearken to me, ye that follow after righteousness. If you wanna be righteous, listen. Ye that seek the Lord, look to the rock where he, where whence ye are, ye are hewn, this is old King James, and the whole of the pit whence ye are digged. Look to Abraham your father and unto Sarah that bear you. So the only place in the Bible where it says if you wanna be righteous, look to a human is when it talks about either Abraham or Sarah, or in the New Testament, there's a lot more of that. But in the Old Testament, it basically, we're supposed to look to Abraham and Sarah for how to be righteous. It does not say look to Mother Mary anywhere in the Bible. But it does say look to Sarah. So I think that could start a whole new Catholic kind of wing, where they start to idolize Sarah, which would be probably more biblically accurate than idolizing Mary. No offense to any Catholics listening to this. Uh, First Peter 3.6 says... um, that we should also look to Sarah as a godly example, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are, as long as you do well, and are not afraid with any amazement. It's kind of an interesting passage in 1 Peter 3.6. It's also controversial, because our idea of obedience and submission today is a lot different than how the Bible talks about it. In our culture, we've started to call that sort of thing bad. In the Bible, Jesus washes his disciples' feet to show them how good those sorts of things can be and how healing they are to relationships. It's one of the top principles in the world that gets challenged is the principle of submission. Case in point, if I can quote Beyonce, she says, power is not given to you. You have to take it. That's Beyonce says that. It's not what the Bible says. The Bible says biblical submission is more like Christ than anything else and God takes the lead on submission. And if he says, if I should do this, how much more should you do this too? And he says, when you get married, you should submit to one another. There's other passages that say we should submit to our bosses, which we do. We do what our bosses tell us to do, but we should do it in a way that we're joyful employees. And we're not grievances to our bosses. Our bosses shouldn't go home at night and say, why did I hire that person? So throughout the Bible, submission's kind of a major thing. And we see Sarah doing that in a number of ways. Also, just that idea of submission, it's not a passive idea. Submission for a godly submission is actually what love looks like, and it's something we should actively do. We should find ways to submit to other people and try to do those things, which is kind of cool. So this highlights a vision of a healthy, strong, and happy woman um, and the transformative power of a woman that is actually paired with a man and give an honor for her relationship with that man throughout everything that we've seen with Sarah. So as we say goodbye to Sarah, and she passes, we should note that a few different parts about her story. One, she talks directly to God herself, and we see evidence of that. God tells Abe to listen to her. Uh, we pointed that out before. She's loved and honored not only by Abraham, but every other person we've seen in the narratives with Sarah, she is highly elevated and honored. Um, she is not treated with anything other than that. So the way she must have handled herself must have been really impressive with dignity or something that demands the respect of the people, even people that aren't from her culture. Sarah was a helpmate, and she grew wise over the years. So in her younger years, she shoved her slave servant at her husband. That was not good. But we see later on, she's actually the one that comes to Abraham and says, you need to get rid of this slave servant that at one point she had pushed on Abraham. Um, so she actually changes her mind. She's not stubborn in her thinking, and over the years she gets, she changes and she grows. She respected Abe's div- difficult position. Um, not only is the the in the marriage, but also that he was in charge of all of these people and soldiers and flocks and herds, uh, and we see evidence of that when she calls him Lord. Um, And Abe respected her leadership and supported her, as in when he told her to deal with Hagar however she pleased. He gave her total authority to run the household the way she wanted to run it. And not only the household, but the servants and the employees and everything else. So that meant they must have had a relationship. In Genesis twenty-one six, we see that she laughs. She's a woman that knows how to laugh and have fun. And she even laughs with God. And at one point, God kind of picks on her about it. But later on, when Isaac's born, she laughs with God and God doesn't see that as a bad thing or pick on her about it. And she just laughs and takes joy in the Lord. She works side by side with Abe as when she hosted the angels with them in Genesis 18.6. Um, um, and yet, despite all these amazing things about Sarah, we saw in Genesis 3, what God said to Adam and Eve is dying, you shall surely die even righteous examples of faith that we're supposed to look to and say, live like this, even those people die. Uh, so death is still a curse, even though we've seen some people show up that God's been able to talk with, walk with, and bless, and that sort of thing. I remember when Steph and I first got married, even before we got married, we weren't smart enough to start doing a Bible study before we got married. Like we were still, we we obviously the next generation smarter than we were. But we did decide like, because everyone was telling us how we should do things when we got married. Everyone. And you're probably getting that already. Everybody and our friends, our unmarried friends were giving us advice on how to be a married couple and whatnot. And I remember actually getting into it with a buddy of mine. And I'm like, you know, like, I appreciate that you're trying to give me advice, but you got to understand, I, I just want to do what the Bible says to do. And even if I don't like it, I'd re- if, the, if the Bible's stepping on my toes, I'd rather move my toes. I don't want the Bible to have to move on my account. So if the Bible says, this is how we should do things in a marriage, let's just try that. And if that busts apart, we can try some other religious book. But let's at least start with the biblical precept. And even at that, Steph's had to put up with me for 25 years now. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's worked out okay. And in large part, that's because we act as a team, we laugh, we read the Bible together and try to do what it says. We are open to growth and and being corrected by each other because Sarah corrects Abraham and Abraham corrects Sarah, and they actually work as a team. Um, And if that's the thing we're supposed to look at and do it, then that's what we want. The other thing we did early on is we started to look at married couples that were way older than we were. And it's like, what does it take? At least in my family, there were a number of my aunts and uncles that had had divorces and things like that. So as much as I respected them, and I think they're amazing people, they weren't the ones I wanted to hear about how to be married from. But I did want to know from my grandparents that had had their 50th anniversary, what does marriage look like? So we got in the car even before we were married. We drove up to North Dakota and we're like, hi, Grandpa, Grandma, I want you to meet my fiance. And like, tell us about marriage, what do we need to do to make it work? And how does that look? And grandpa's like, ah, what do I know? And, you know, but grandma had lots of advice and she gave great advice and things like, you know, do things that you don't necessarily want to do on your own. But now that you're a married couple, you do them anyways. So Zach goes dancing because he loves you and he's going to figure out how to do it. But as you get married, if you want to make it 25 years, don't go make him go dancing every week because there'll be a point where that then turns into being bitter. So there's this balance you find and there's no right or wrong answers to it. um, But it really does start with the advice that the Bible gives on how to be married. And it's kind of cool. So we say farewell to Sarah, and she's gone. Oh, verse two. So Sarah died in Kirjath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Kirith Arba, I'll give you the definitions first. Kirith Arba means the city of four. So possibly there were four tribes or four cities that were connected to each other. I'm going to give you an alternative translation in a little bit. Hebron in both the Hebrew and the Arabic means friend or an association of friends. Traditionally a reference, according to the Arab traditions, it's a reference to Abraham's friendship with Abimelech. So this is where she died. It's, they were staying in those lands. But I want to focus a little bit more. I'll come back to the four thing, because there's some cool stuff there. But that idea that Abe weeps for his wife, and of course, then I'm trying to think, what would it be like if I lost Steph? And that's very sad thinking, and I'm not going to go there. So the next thing is, Abe and Sarah have been married for a really long time. We think a 50th wedding anniversary is a big deal. That's nothing to these people. They were married, they spent a long time uh, together, And I got sick of doing the math, so I didn't go back and figure out exactly how many years. But it was way more than a 50th anniversary because they're both in their hundreds. Um, marriage to me, and again, the idea of submission we talked about is highly assaulted in our culture right now. Never submit, never get in. You take that power and you grab it, Beyonce. The problem with that idea is that if everybody's doing that, we have conflict with everybody. Marriage is a lot like that. It's really hard to find people that just elevate and honor marriage as this wonderful part of Judeo-Christian tradition that you don't mess with that. And it's a beautiful thing. And people try to pick on it as this horrible thing um, or something that needs to be retranslated or rethought for the new age. No, it doesn't. Marriage, according to the Bible, is a glimpse of what heaven can look like. There's one other person on the earth that you can ultimately trust have complete intimacy with, and you can love that person hopefully forever. So when Satan takes a marriage and wrecks it, he's taking away another glimpse that people can see. Even not married people can look at a married couple and say, "That's cool," um, and and they can see that as kind of something to look at. On the flip side, bad marriages <laughs> are a glimpse of hell, of the worst kind. And I was trying to not use the word hell, but I. It's, it's what I want to do. In the same sense that a good marriage can show what trust looks like, a bad marriage shows what mistrust looks like. Like the deepest kind of rejection because you've been intimate and now you reject each other. That's horrible. Accusations, you're this, you're that. A sense of guilt, what did I do to mess this up? And the problem with all of these things is that you take something like marriage it really is something that can be bad or good. It's rarely just okay. Usually, marriage, because it's so bonding, can be one of the other, one of those things or the other. Um, and the Bible does have situations where divorce is the is the prescription to certain kinds of human sin. The Bible also has things where it says, "Look, if you can marry yourself to God and have the kind of intimacy, trust, and love that you most people need with another person, if you can ha- if you can have that with God." more power to you, Paul says. That's a wonderful thing. But in this case and in this story with Sarah and Abraham, we should celebrate the fact that these two were awesome. They were an amazing couple. And if you want to see what it looks like to be an amazing couple, it's like driving up to North Dakota and talking to grandpa and grandma. Read the story and really handpick how does Sarah and Abraham interact with each other? How do they work together? How do they both have honor and respect from the people groups around them? One doesn't dominate over the other. They're a team and they're a partner. Abimelech talks directly to Sarah. He almost likes her better than Abraham. Uh, So there's pieces there that are kind of interesting. And you can go a lot of different directions with that. But for me, I just wanted to say it's pretty cool to see an awesome marriage and to just have respect for that. The grieving part, Abraham weeps for her. Of course he weeps with her. I was kidding. I will get into this a little bit. Samuel grieves over the loss of Saul's heart. We see that word there again too. Remember when Saul was a king and he was going to be a great king and then his heart kind of went sour? Samuel grieves for Saul. Grieving isn't necessarily about death when you use that word. David mourns after his kid dies, but he doesn't weep. He just gets up and goes about his day to the point where his servants are like, David, like your kid just died. What was the problem? Why were you so upset before they died, but now you're not upset? Remember that story? And then, and then he goes, well, because he's dead now, there's nothing I can do about it. And he just moves on like that. Jesus weeps when Lazarus dies in John 11:35. 35. Um, and then the same guy, Jesus, who weeps for Lazarus, when he's got somebody that wants to go bury their father, Jesus turns on him in Matthew 8, 22 and says, let the dead bury their own dead. And you're like, okay, so should we grieve for people when they die or shouldn't we? because there's kind of different narratives on that. Some of which, two of which come from Jesus, which look like polar os- opposites. And I think the answer to that is God's trying to show us that grieving looks different for everybody. And I remember, I think, I, so for me, grieving's a big topic because I got very strong opinions about it when I was seven years old, when my mom died. And I got to see how people handled grief and even as a little kid, like as an adult I process some of it, and I really as a kid you just get mad or sad or happy or you really appreciate certain people. But as an adult you think back and think, "Well, why did I appreciate so and so so much when my mom died? And why was I so upset with this person? And what it was?" And I think part of it is when people die and you have to help counsel them through that. Death hurts. It's part of the curse. It is the curse. So when you have someone near to you die, you're as close to the curse of the universe that we're going to get. That pain that we feel, that ain't that anger, the frustration, the denial, the depression that comes with death, all of that is part of the curse. And it's part of what sin brought into this world. We don't live forever. And for Abraham, he weeps. In Job 2.13, Job's friends show up and they come trucking over and I love this sentence in job 2:13 so they sat down with him upon the ground seven days and seven nights and no one spoke a word to him for they saw that his grief was very great. When we know people that are grieving, isn't it cool that his friends just his friends go on to give him really bad advice so job's a whole thing on how to deal with grief. But they just sat with him for seven days. And I remember the people that just sat with me that I appreciated more than anybody when my mom died. That I just, thanks for just being here. I appreciated the people that could still remember who I was before my mom died. They didn't look at me and say, oh, kid of dead woman. And that was my best friends. Those are my friends that are like, you want to go come play ball and you want to do this? And. I mean, it was pretty cold in one sense, but the other sense, I just liked the normalcy of it. I could spend an hour with my friends and not think about what had happened to my mom. So there's some kind of some those kinds of things. Death reminds us we're under the deepest kind of curse. and There's no good way around that. And sometimes helping people when someone's died is to just spend time with them and not talk because you can see how hard the grief is. The worst thing you can do, if to, just to give the flip side, and I don't know if anybody's dealing with death right now, but the worst thing you can do when you're trying to help counsel someone who's somebody is tell them how they should think. And Christians do that worse than anybody in my experience. It was the Christians that came up and said really stupid things like, well, your mom's in heaven now. You shouldn't feel any pain. You should be happy for her. And it's kind of like, no, I just lost my mom. That sucks. There's nothing good about it or redeemable. It's the curse of the universe. And you're telling me to just get over it? Go away. And I think they had good intentions, but they also didn't have a, a cautious heart about how to handle somebody when they're dealing grief. And then you run into the Christians that do the opposite. They just sit with you. I loved back scratchies. And my mom used to give me back scratches during the middle of church services. It's maybe why I like the Bible so much. It's like behaviorism. <laughs> but I had an aunt that would come and she just gave me back scratch during church and I thought it was just the nicest thing in the world because I could shut my eyes and it was almost like my mom hadn't died it was pretty cool only she had longer fingernails so I could still tell the difference So we see that Abraham has said goodbye to his wife and he weeps. Then we get into the second part of the chapter and it goes on to a whole different kind of thing. Oh, by the way, the death of Sarah was hard on Isaac too. And it says that at the end of Genesis 24, verse 67. But he's oddly absent from the narrative right now. And that's part of that mirroring of the story of Jesus. Like Jesus is going to go away for a while and we won't see him. Um So Abraham's going to honor his wife. And the way he grieves is he says, darn it, I'm going to give her a great place to be buried. Because if I can do anything, I'm going to honor her body and honor her in her death. And I think sometimes when people grieve, they go to action and that's okay too. So verse three, I'll read a few. Then Abraham stood up from before his dead Sarah, and he spoke to the sons of Heth saying, I am a foreigner and a visitor among you, give me property for a burial place among you that I might bury my dead out of my sight. And the sons of Heth answered Abraham saying to him, hear us, my Lord, you are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of burial places. None of us will withhold from you this burial place that you may bury your dead. Okay, who are the sons of Heth? In Genesis 10, 20, 15, we saw that the second son of Canaan, uh, was, who is was the son of Ham, who is the son of Noah, is the ancestor of the Hittites and the sons of Heth are better otherwise known as the Hittites. Um, Abimelech was uh, apparently the leader among them. We see here that they live near Hebron. Um, Abraham says, I'm a foreigner and a visitor. That's In Hebrew, that's just ger uh, toshab. And it means and emphasizes the subordinate tenant. So I, I'm living in your apartment building and I'm living under your law, is kind of what he's saying. Um. This has to be a typo. I just have a note here that says more humidity than last time. <laughs> what does that mean? Humili- humility. Humility than last time. Thank you very much. It's like whoa, it's hot in this tent. <laughs> so he um. So he's basically, uh, when he says "ger toshab," he's basically saying, I'm lowly among you and I get it. It's pretty typical in Eastern interactions that you start with humility. So most Eastern cultures have that tradition. And Abraham seems to be following this tradition and noting that he's just a foreigner and a visitor. Abe's making his home here now. He has for a while. Um, it's been over 30 years so by American standards, when you live someone for 30 years, you're not a foreigner and you're not a visitor. You pretty much have lived there for 30 years, but he's not saying that at all. He's basically got an attitude that he is not in this place. This is not his home. Um, He also, speaking of home, has to have a ton of faith in God's promises because if he's going to bury Sarah here, he's burying her where her descendants will own the land and he wants to be there too. I like the idea of a foreigner and a stranger. David uses it in Psalm 39. He says, Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not thy peace at my tears, for I am a stranger with you and a sojourner as all my fathers were. And I think he's thinking of this phrase that Abraham used back here. There's a heavenly kingdom that we get to go to, and this planet is not our home. Uh, This is not where we make our home. Um they respond and say, hear us, my Lord, you are a mighty prince among us. All of that is only three words in the Hebrew. They are Edan, Elohim, which probably recognize, nasi, which translating just the three words would say, ruling God, you are lifted and rising, or you're lifted among us. So I'll go back to the English translation, hear us, my Lord, you are a mighty prince among us. And they're getting all of that from Adan Elohim Nasi. In other words, you're the ruling God that you're you're the one that lifts God up in our community. So they're really elevating him in kind of an amazing way. But you are God lifting up, or you're lifting up God. Mighty here is a translation over 2000 times, the word mighty gets translated in the Bible as God. But on this verse, and there's only one other one in the Bible where Elohim is translated as mighty. So another way to translate that into English is, um, you, are, you are a God prince among us, um, which is a pretty strong statement for them to say, which says how Abraham was respected. So the fact that he comes in so subordinate, and they give that kind of a response There's a lot of honor going on here. The only other time where that gets translated, that word "mighty" gets translated as "mighty" instead of "God," uh, is when Pharaoh is giving up with Moses, and Pharaoh calls Moses "mighty." He actually is calling Moses "God," um, and Pharaoh doesn't quite understand it, and neither do these people quite understand the relationship. Um, God promised that He's that we should be exalted in the God. God promised Abraham that he would be exalted. And here we see a fulfillment of that promise. He is exalted in the world. He has power. He has respect. He's intimately connected God to his own personhood to the point where God calls him a prophet and the, the sons of Heth say, no, you rule like a God among us. Your, you, your law, your justice is actually pretty cool. In other words, they're saying it would be an honor if you buried your dead among us. Maybe they think there'd be some kind of special benefit to that of some sort. Um, And they offer it for free. This is typical of ancient negotiations. It shows goodwill. It says that the stuff, this exchange we're doing isn't as important as as the relationship. So they often start it this way. David started the same kind of negotiations with the threshing floor when he says, I'll pay you for the threshing floor. And they said, no, I'll give it to you for free. David says, no, 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 I need to pay you for this because I want to have that right relationship with you. So Abraham now physically reinforces his humility. <clears throat> he does not accept the praise that they give. Verse seven, then Abraham stood up and bowed himself to the people of the land, the sons of Heth. And he spoke with them saying, if it's your wish that I bury my dead out of sight, hear me and meet and meet with Ephron, the son of Zohar for me. That he might give me the cave of Macphila, which he has. Oh, there's so much cool stuff with this, I'll get to it. Which at the end which is at the end of his field. Let him give it to me at the full price, as properly for a burial among you. So he bowed himself to the people, he's still conducting himself with grace, humility. Remember if this is a symbol, like Paul said, of, of how we should do things between when the sun is away and when the son gets his bride back? Abraham's conducting himself in this interaction and we're supposed to see this is for our age that we live in right now this is how we're supposed to interact with the world with honor with grace we understand the culture Abraham knows this culture and he comes in to treat with them as though he understands the culture intimately because he's lived there for 30 years What you think of the tradition of missions work in the Christian world, there's been some mission work that's been pretty amazing, like whole civilizations getting converted to the faith. Then there's other missions work, which kind of makes, I think, godly people cringe a little bit, where we don't respect their culture, we don't respect who they are, we just tell them they need to change everything and, you know, wear neckties and they'll be better people. Um, and And it's kind of a corruption of, I think, what Abraham models here, which is For when you read this text, you can barely tell that Abraham's not a Hittite. He knows their law, he knows their rules, and I'll show you that in a sec. This is really similar to when Abe gave everything to Sodom. Another way to look at this, he doesn't want to have this country of people have anything against him, so he wants to deal fairly with them, and he's basically saying, "Let me pay full price for this." The other thing about Abraham's humility here is look at how he elevates Ephron, who's this prior to this, kind of a no-name guy, he's sitting in the room, but he's talking to the king because he doesn't believe he has the right to talk to Ephron without going to the king. So he's actually working through the proper channels and doing things appropriately. And he elevates Ephron to be a pretty, to lift him up, which could be a negotiation tactic. I don't know, but I don't think Abe's trying to negotiate here. The cave of Machphela is a really cool spot that he has in mind. There's a few caves in this area of um, so you gotta ask why this cave? If Abraham's looking for a place to bury Sarah and he's trying to honor her, why did he pick Machpelah? What's so special about this cave? So there's tons of theories. Theory number one is, this was Sarah's favorite place to hang out. I don't like that theory because caves? That's her favorite place to hang out? But who knows, maybe. Second theory, it's a symbolic location. What's the symbol? I don't know. Third theory, it's by an altar that he visited on a regular basis. So he knew he could go to this altar by these, the trees that are here, and then he could go you know, lay flowers by Sarah's grave or something like that. So it was a place that he knew he would come past a few times, which is a plausible theory. We often wanna go to locations where we bury our dead. But there's a couple other clues too, which the theory, another theory, and these are all theories, they're just for fun. I wouldn't argue with people over these theories. Um, but if they did want to argue about this, they're probably my kind of person anyways. Kirith Arba, remember, was called the City of Four. Why Four? So there's something to know about these caves. And we can look in other places. So the Jewish book, the Assatur, uh actually, it's not Jewish, it's Samaritan. So there's ancient Samaritan texts written by a guy named Rashi. Um, and he talks about these caves. And he actually lists four people that are buried here. I'm uh, not Four eight, but they're four couples. He lists Abraham and Sarah. He lists Rebecca and goodness, Isaac and Jacob and Rachel. I should actually look at my notes. This is what happens when I look at my notes. So Leah, Rachel, we'll just edit that later. So that's three couples, right? But in the Assatur, it actually lists Adam and Eve as being buried in these caves too. And you're like, oh, well, that's interesting. So how do you, why do you call it the place of four when there's eight? Because in Jewish tradition, when two people get married, two people are one flesh. So the Samaritan stuff actually has appropriate Jewish translation. It would be the cave of four. Um, the Sephir Yah Ha Yashar, a Jewish text, tells the story that the right to be buried here is part of what Jacob was actually trying to get from Esau. Is that he wanted to be buried in the cave with his father. Um, And that that right, this is actually part of the right. In fact, it's the only land right they would have had because it's the only land that they're ever actually going to own. Right? Uh, Point being, any theory you pick this location has a lot of significance to Abraham. It means something to him. It's why he's going to negotiate it. Verse 10, now Ephron dwelt among the sons of Heth. In other words, he was sitting in the room when all this happened. And Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the presence of the sons of Heth. And all who entered the city gate of the city said, no, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field and the cave that's in it. And I give it to you in the presence of the sons of my people. I give it to you. That's the third time he says, I give it to you bury your dead. Okay. Hittite law, if you read the Hittite texts, this comes from uh, Victor Hamilton. This is quotes from the Hittite law. If the fields have been given to him, he shall render services or pay taxes. If the fields have been given to him only in a small part, he shall not pay the taxes. They shall, they shall render or pay taxes them from his father's house. If anyone holds the field as a gift from a king, he shall not render services. So pay attention to Hittite law. Here's another passage from Hittite law, and then I'll put them together. The people of the village bear witness to land transactions and can give land as a people. So according to Hittite law, Abraham is asking for part of a piece of land. He just wants the cave. Then Ephron comes back and says, no, 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 you can have the cave and the field. Okay, I know I'm being geeky here. Ephron doesn't want to pay taxes, which is huge validity for this story because it totally matches Hittite law. So we have two sources that say the exact same thing. So this is found in Hittite dialogue documents. There are hundreds of examples of land transactions that look exactly like this one. In other words, this particular passage of the Bible doesn't read like the Bible so far because it's not written like the Bible. It's written like a Hebrew, like a Hittite land transaction. So when it says, I give it to you, I give it to you. No, no, hear me, my Lord. All of this kind of weird language we're starting to see here looks just like Hittite, Hittite land transactions. Abraham's obeying the cultures of the land. And that's, I think that's super cool. Then Abraham bows himself down before the people of the land. See the people of the land thing looks just like the Hittite law, the people of the village. Okay. And he spoke to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land. In other words, all the people can hear it. And that's why they're meeting in this thing saying, I, if you will give it, please hear me and I will give you money for the field. Take it from me and I will bury my dead there. So in summary, Abraham walks in the door. He says, Hey, I'd like to bury my wife you can bury her wherever you want. No, no, no. I want to bury her in this cave and it's owned by a guy named Ephron. I've done my homework. Can you talk to Ephron for me? Because he's honoring Ephron. Ephron's in the room and Ephron says, no, no, no. Let me tell you, you're a Lord among us. If you want to bury your wife, you can bury your wife. I'll give you the cave and the field. In other words, you get to pay all the taxes. And Abraham could have fought back against that, but he doesn't say that at all. He says, okay, I'll take the cave and the field but let me pay you for it too. So he's already going to be paying taxes on this. But then he says, I want to pay you for it too, which means he really wants a clean transaction in front of all the people. This gets evidenced. The other side benefit of doing it in front of all the people is that this is now legitimate inheritance of land. The first little piece of property is actually going to get owned by Abraham and his descendants right here. And it's totally legal. Um, So Abraham's accepting the field with the cave. I think it's a super fun, I know I get super weird about this, but I think it's a fun example of how ancient negotiations would have looked. And I wish we would do more of this. I want to go to the market and say, I would love to have something in your market. And then Target says, you can have anything in the store. We love to have you here. It's an honor for you to be in our store. And I would say, no, 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 no. I don't want to just take from you. I will pay you a fair price for all your things. And then Target would say, okay, well, if you would like that Christmas tree, that's $5,000. And then I would say $5,000 is quite a bit. And I would love to pay you, but sadly, I can only afford to give you a hundred (laughs) bucks. And Target says, then let let us help you then, because we will give you this Christmas tree for only $500. And then I say, that is very kind of you. And this is ancient negotiation. I think it's really cool because you're both humbling yourself to one another and you're both coming into agreement and you're not quite saying what you mean, which is very un-American, right? What's the price? It's this much. Take it or leave it. Goodbye. But in these negotiations, the relationship counted more than the material transaction because I wanted to leave the transaction with Target feeling like they had gotten a fair price and with me feeling like I got a deal. And if you travel at all, that's still largely the tradition in some of these older cultures, Um, especially when you're in marketplaces and whatnot. There aren't price tags on things, and you're frustrated as an American because you want price tags. Embrace the joy of negotiation. The idea of bowing himself down, I saw some ridiculous thoughts on this. And I just wanted to point them out because this is the thing where the Bible gets translated weird, I think. Bowing ourselves down to authority is not ungodly. So Abraham bowing himself down before these people was befitting of the culture. It wasn't that he was submitting to them in some weird 20th century sense. Um, And I don't even read it that way. Maybe you saw that and that made you cringe a little bit. Um, But I don't even read it that way. I think he's bowing himself down because he's showing himself humble. It's like me going to Target, asking for a deal, knowing I don't deserve a deal. Um, And that's kind of what he's doing there. So social customs are neutral, and it's really important that we as Christians recognize that. There's biblical mandates, and there's social customs. And most of the stuff that people get religious about and get angry about are social customs. And when we were kids, it was, you can't wear jeans to church. And you couldn't wear pants with holes in them, and you had to wear a belt, and you can't wear your AC/DC t-shirts. In fact, don't wear black t-shirts at all to church. And then as a kid, I was like, I don't want to go to church. This sounds like a horrible place to go. And then I read the Bible and realized none of that stuff was in the Bible. Like they didn't even hadn't even heard of ACDC. So, um, sometimes Christians have to interact with the cultures that they're in and get there. And I remember when we went to Italy, and he was telling us the story. They had somebody die at their church, and he goes. He goes to the, the, they wouldn't let him bury her in the graveyard because it was a Catholic graveyard, and he's a Protestant church. So he had to go down to City Hall, and he got into it with them in a true Italian argument sense. And at one point, he got so revved up in his Italian, channeling his Italian customs, and he said, what am I, a dog that you will not let me bury my dead? And they, that worked. <laughs> because he knew that burials were a really big deal in Italy, and they make a huge deal out of it. And honoring your family through proper burials, like if you don't show up to the family funeral in, Ita- in Italian culture, you're disowned from the family. And so there's this kind of thing where that's really important, and he's saying, look, you don't even let us bury our dead properly. How horrible. You should be disowned from all civilized world. Um, but he had to get to that point because he knew the culture. He'd been living there for decades and he knew how to deal with them, and he knew what he had to say to get them to go where he wanted. Well, Abraham wants this place to bury Sarah. It has significance. It's not clear if he, well, verse 14, and Ephron answered Abraham saying to him, my Lord, listen to me. The land is worth 400 shekels of silver. That's an outrageous price. I'll get back to that. What is that between you and me? That's nothing. You're a rich man. You're a prince among us. So in elevating Abraham when he walked in the door, they're going to get the best price they can from him. Right. I like the interpretation that they just had honor and respect for him too, but th- that could also be what they're doing there. So bury your dead. And Abraham listened to Ephron. And Abraham weighed out the silver for Ephron, which he had named in the hearing of the sons of Heth, 400 shekels of silver, currency, and monarchs. So option one, the what is that between you and me, there's two ways to interpret that. One is, we're friends. Grant, I'll take you out to eat. You're my kid. I'll pay for dinner. What's that between you and me? That's nothing, right? Don't order the steak. It's a small, so one way to interpret that is what is that between you and me? Ephraim's trying to say, this is a really small amount of money. This isn't, let's not, you need to bury your wife. We respect your wife and whatnot. Abe then pays that small amount of money, even when he doesn't have to, because it really isn't much to him, but it's more of a symbolic payment and it allows Ephron to be generous and share in the morning of Sarah with him. I think that's kind of a nice interpretation. At the end of the day, Abraham's above reproach, and he has no debt to the world. Second interpretation, what is that between you and me? That's a huge amount of money, which fits with the tradition of buying and selling in this region, um, and that Abraham then pays the full price with no further negotiation. So you're expecting to go from $5,000 down to hundred dollars And Abraham just comes back and says, No, I'll buy the Christmas tree for $5,000. Which, in that interpretation, he's honoring Sarah. And he's saying, She's worth it. There's no negotiation around this. This is my wife. She's amazing. She's worth whatever price you ask. I'm just going to pay it. So that would be customary to the Eastern negotiation. They both get honor and respect. um, And it sticks with that narrative a little bit more. And it shows Abe's generosity. It shows his abundance. And at the end of the day, Abe's above reproach with no debt to the world. Both interpretations come to the same conclusion. Abraham's dealing at totally above reproach. If this is a reflection on how we should deal with the world, whenever we have to deal with non-Christians in the world, we should be above reproach. We should make them feel better about themselves than we walked in on them. And then you look at the church in America today. What does the church do with anyone who's not in the church? We make them feel less important than they were when they walked in the door. We tell them what they should and shouldn't be doing, how they should do things, and we don't know anything about their culture. I don't really know a lot about Beyonce, even though I quote her. Um, We're not doing what Abraham did. If we're supposed to look to him for an example on how to deal with the world, they had respect for the guy because he treated them like kings and queens. He was amazing to them. He helped them. He served them. He probably sold them lots of wool and uh, um, lamb chops too, but that's aside the point. So this particular piece of land, if we go into it and we know where it is today, uh, it is not green. This is in the desert territory. There's caves and whatnot. This is a horrible piece of land. It is not worth this amount of money today, much less back then, which further lends to the idea that Abraham's paying a ton of money for this, way too much money. Uh, 400 shekels, for instance, is about the same as 100 pounds of silver. And 2 Samuel 24, 24, David pays only 50 shekels for the temple site So the spot which is an entire half of a city where they built a temple um, is only 50 shekels and Abraham's paying 400 for a couple of caves in a field. Jeremiah 32:9 Jeremiah pays 17 shekels um, for that field that he bought which gives you more of an idea of the price of a field and what it should cost. So we know Abraham had a thousand uh, from Genesis 2016 he had a thousand shekels. So he had money to spend from Abimelech. So he's paying the Hittites money that they gave him back to them. And I thought that was kind of funny. And he's still coming out ahead with 600 shekels in his pocket. So he's doing just fine in terms of the Hittites. And that maybe is what Ephron was saying when he's like, what's that to you and me? We know you got a thousand. How about you give me this much back? So God's promised the land to Abe. Abe has learned that when he pushes to move God's plan forward, it doesn't work. But when he does everything he can do to make sure that he's above reproach with the world, God starts moving the plan forward. The same thing happens in ministry. When we make plans for ministries, they tend to not work. But when we let God do the work, they explode. They do amazing things. Um, And I think that's kind of encouraging. Uh, The currency of the merchants was another kind of thing where Abraham, when it says the currency of the merchants, they're talking about whose scales you're going to use. So one of the problems in Leviticus that the Jews were supposed to use balanced scales because what would happen is if you're buying from me I would weigh out your gold and my scale would be a little off in my favor so what people would do is they bring their own scale and then they weigh it on theirs and go, "Hey, your scale's off." But the scale we're using on my side is also balanced in my favor. So scales weren't a science back then. So when Abraham says we're going to use your the currency of the merchants He's basically saying, "I'll pay you the, I'll pay you the 400 shekels, and we can use your scales," which is again, it's like tipping the waitress. I mean, he's just being really abundant here. Verse 17. So the, I, so you could read this over really quick, right? I know this is a story you can read in like five minutes, but isn't this? I look at this stuff and I think this is kind of cool, but okay. Verse 17. So the field of Ephron, which was in Machpelah which was before Mamre, the field and the cave which was in it and all the trees that were in the field and and which were within all the surrounding borders were deeded to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the sons at Heth before all who went in at the city gate. According to what we see from Hittite transactions and records, this was probably the piece of paper and what it said. And it got thrown into the family file that proved they had the land because this is exactly how a Hittite land transaction would read, including the trees part and all the trees which were in the field. And according to Hittite law, you got everything above the land and everything below the land, just like American property law. The transaction was finished, the deal was done. and And this is the first land that Abraham owns. And now while his son is away, the father takes ownership of the land and starts to get the land back from the Gentiles. I think that's cool too, because it's exactly what's happening in the church age. We are soul by soul retaking the, the human beings that the enemy has stolen. And that's what the church does. We free people from their prisons and the Holy Spirit and, and is moving and the bride is being prepared. Verse 19, and after this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in a cave of the field of Machpelah, before Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave that were in it were deeded to Abraham by the sons of Heth as a properly for a burial place. The deed gets mentioned twice. The theme of this chapter is not Sarah's death. And that's hard because the death thing was a big deal for me. I spent a lot of time thinking about that. But the theme of this chapter fits with the overall biblical narrative. This isn't as much about Sarah dying as it is about God keeping his promises. This is a small but humble beginning to the, the Abraham's family getting ownership of the land. Abraham trusts God, and God is starting to move on his promises. Today, this is, we know exactly where these caves are today. They're called the the cave or the tomb of the patriarchs. The Arabs call it the sanctuary of Abraham, and there is really no contesting where this site is and what the site is. It's got a massive basilica on top of it, and around the basilica was built a mosque, and it goes back and forth. So Herod the Great built a rectangular enclosure over the cave to honor the Jews. Remember he kind of built things for the Jewish people? So that it's the only surviving structure from the Herodian era. It has that's partially because it has six foot thick walls. It's a beast of a thing over the top of it. The Byzantines, the Arabs, the Crusaders, Saladin himself, the Malmark Turks, the Ottoman Turks, and the British all added to this massive cathedral mosque building type thing. Um, it's the second most holy place in the Jewish religion. And it's the second most holy place in the, or the third most holy place in the, the Islamic traditions. Um, most eras, there's some exceptions, but during most eras of human history, both the Arab people, Ishmael's descendants, and the Jewish people, Abraham's, uh, uh, or uh, Isaac's descendants, have been able to worship at this site. Even today, there's sections for the Muslims and there's sections for the Jews to come and worship at this site. There's also been massacres here um, where that hasn't worked out somewhere and one side or the other has slaughtered the other side. There, it, it's, it's an odd place. It's still one of the most um, revered places for young Jewish couples to get married for obvious reasons. It has... Um, according to the Bible, it has three of the most amazing marriages in the Bible in the, that were buried in this spot. Um, so in Genesis 25, 9, just to look ahead, Abe's going to get buried here. Uh, but I won't come back and talk all about the tomb again. In chapter thirty-five twenty-seven, Isaac and Rebecca will be buried here. And then Jacob and Leah will be buried here in uh, Genesis 49 and Genesis 50. In the same way that Jesus is away, we see this as a reflection. So there's death and mourning, Abraham mourns. We have to deal with a world that's in grief um, and, and whatnot, and that we have this promise of God being fulfilled in small and faithful steps. So if Sarah's the law and she died, uh, and she gets buried after G, after Isaac or Jesus is raised from the dead, it doesn't mean that she goes away or that she's not honored. And I don't want to imply that at all. In fact, Jesus said, I didn't come here to destroy the law and the prophets. I came here to fulfill those things. And part of what's going on with Isaac and the promise of Israel continuing to move forward and even this perch in its land, even though the law or Sarah has lost her part of the story, she's died or she's, she's passed on, it doesn't mean that she's not honored and she's not respected and she doesn't, those virtues that she had will endure forever. And I think that's a cool idea to think about the law. Not that we all live under Jewish law anymore. It is, the power of it is kind of broken. Um, but at the same time, it, it won't go away either, because it's God's idea of how to run a society. The next story we're going to get is that Abraham gets to work, and he sets out the Holy Spirit, and he releases it. There's actually a period between when Jesus leaves the disciples and the Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes on them. There's a short period of time where they mourn. They have to deal with these people that are kind of mocking Jesus and whatnot, and they don't know what to do. So they wait in Jerusalem and they pray. And then at the, at the Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes out and goes to work. So when we come back next week, the next order of business is Abraham's going to cut loose God's helper or Eleazar, and uh, Eleazar's going to go find the bride and then we come back and we get to hear a love story right after a grieving story. So I hope this wasn't too much of a downer um, of a talk, but some good stuff. Let's say a word of prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. Help us to understand it. Lord, you say there's no, there's nothing in the Bible that's so hidden that we can't learn it for ourselves. We can't teach it to other people. We can't share it with our family and our friends. Um, but Lord, we live in a church today that tells us that the Bible's too complex, that we can't teach it to each other, that we can't study it together, that we can't uncover its mysteries. And Lord, I just thank you because you could have written that book that was full of puzzles and mysteries and things we couldn't solve. And there's pieces of that in the Bible too. But Lord, for the the lions share of the Word of God, we can just read it, and with very simple understanding, we can use the New Testament commentary, and we can understand what the Word of God says. And That it speaks right to our lives and how we should behave and how we should conduct ourselves. So, Lord, help us to be good at grieving when we have to and good at bringing comfort to those that are in grief when we have to. Help us to be wise about that and shrewd and knowing that throughout the Bible, different people grieve in different ways um, and that even your son Jesus, Lord, uh, you. Um, dealt with death in different ways at different times in your life. And we don't know how we're going to deal with death until death happens. So Lord, just teach us and counsel us in those moments. Lord, when we have to deal with the world, help help us to be above reproach. Help us to be kind and humble and merciful. Help us to understand the customs of the people that we talk with and we deal with. To be sensitive to those things. Not because we are worried about being sensitive for sensitivity's sake, Lord, but because it's kind and it's nice and it's gracious to deal with other people in a way that they feel honored and elevated and that they don't have anything against us because of our beliefs. Um, But instead, they they can't believe that um, our kindness and how our beliefs lead us to that kind of grace and kindness with others. Lord, teach us your ways above all and reprove and fix any wicked way that's in us, help us to just be loving people and to be kind people, Lord. Help, because we know that you can work in that environment and you can start to fulfill your promises. Uh, and your promises, Lord, are that you love the whole world, that you died and gave your life, your only son, uh, so that we can live. And, Lord, we just want to share that with the people around us. We know so many people that aren't living in the joy of Christ. Uh, Even those that call themselves Christians, that they are missing something in their life, and Lord, help us point them to you, Uh, because you've promised us that you can, piece by piece, you can fill our hearts with joy and love, patience, understanding, long suffering. Lord, those fruits they come from you, and we just appreciate that. We love you. We lift you up in Jesus' name. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful. You can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.